Hello, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance Podcast. I'm Phil Freeman, and in this episode, I'll be talking to trumpeter Randy Brecker. This is our sixth year, so I decided it was time to change up our format a little. And there's more to it than just the addition of the music you're hearing behind my voice. This season, we're going to have a single subject that we're going to be exploring through all 10 episodes that I'm going to be presenting. And that subject is fusion. Fusion, of course, is a term that means different things to different people. When most people hear it, they probably think of bands from the 1970s, like the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Return to Forever, Weather Report, groups that were formed by ex-members of Miles Davis's band that played extremely complex compositions that were sometimes closer to progressive rock than to jazz, but which still left room for extended improvisation. And what's interesting about that positioning is that it's very easy to draw lines between that stuff and the music being made by Yes, King Crimson, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, Santana, all of which gets filed under just plain rock. And if you extend the boundaries out just a little bit further, you get to the music Latin artists like Eddie Palmieri, Ray Barreto, and the Fania All-Stars were making at the same time. Or think about some of the really adventurous funk and R&B that was being made by Earth, Wind & Fire, Parliament and Funkadelic, The Ohio Players, Slave, The Isley Brothers. This, this is what's so interesting to me about fusion, is that at its best, it's about all kinds of musical boundaries being knocked down. I recently spent some time listening to a whole bunch of albums by George Duke, released on the MPS label between about 1971 and 1976. Duke was a really fascinating figure because he traveled between worlds this way to a really unprecedented degree. He had his own trio in the late 60s and somehow or other hooked up with electric violinist Jean-Luc Ponty. They made an album together and the gigs they played in L.A. brought them to the attention of Frank Zappa and Cannonball Adderley, two people who couldn't have been doing more different things at the time. But Zappa hired Ponty to play on Hot Rats, and then wrote and produced an entire album, King Kong, on which Ponty played Zappa's compositions, and George Duke was the keyboardist on that record. And after that, both Zappa and Cannonball Adderley who, don't forget, had Joe Zawinul in his band before that. Joe Zawinul, who composed In a Silent Way and played with Miles Davis, and formed Weather Report with Wayne Shorter. And both Adderley and Zappa wanted George Duke in their bands. He wound up taking both gigs, doing two years with Zappa, then two years with Adderley, then going back to Zappa for three or four more years. He had left the Zappa group by 1975, though, so he was not part of the concerts recorded for the album Zappa in New York. But Randy Brecker was. Brecker and his brother, saxophonist Michael Brecker, who died in 2007, worked together in dozens, if not hundreds, of contexts from the late 60s to the 90s. They were both part of that Zappa concert, which was related to their being part of the Saturday Night Live band at the time. They played on a million recording sessions for everyone from Aerosmith to Bette Midler to Aretha Franklin to Lou Reed to Dire Straits to Donald Fagan. 
They were part of drummer Billy Cobham's band in the early to mid-70s, playing on Crosswinds and Total Eclipse and Shabazz and A Funky Thide of Sings. And right around that same time, they formed the Brecker Brothers Band and made a string of albums for Arista that were extremely successful. Now, what matters for the purposes of this introduction is that the side of fusion the Brecker Brothers represented was very different from the Mahavishnu Return to Forever weather report side. That was, for lack of a better term, white fusion. It was marketed to white rock audiences. Those bands toured with rock bands. They played arenas. Lenny White uh, talked about it in the previous episode of this podcast. The members of Return to Forever hung out with members of Yes. Now on the other side of the coin, there was black and Latin fusion. Like I said earlier, there was some incredibly challenging music being made under the headings of salsa and Latin jazz in the 70s. You should check out the episode of this podcast where I interviewed Eddie Palmieri to hear more about that, as well as the episode with Billy Cobham, where he talks about performing with the Fania All-Stars. There are funk records that are every bit as complex as prog rock. Jazz artists like Donald Byrd and Freddie Hubbard and George Duke and even Joe Henderson were all making records that can really only be described as fusion in the early 70s. And that's without even getting into what Miles Davis was doing, particularly with his live band from 1973 to 1975. But except for George Duke, who actually had Frank Zappa cut a couple of guitar solos on his 1974 album Feel, they were often drawing more from funk than from rock, and they were marketed more to black audiences than white ones. And as Randy Brecker explains in this interview, that was where the Brecker brothers fell. They had more success on black radio and on the R&B charts than in the rock world. Now eventually, that more funk-oriented, R&B-oriented side of fusion slid in an explicitly commercial, radio-friendly direction, and a lot of it ended up as smooth jazz, which is probably to some degree why the term is vilified in some quarters today. But that doesn't really take anything away from the good stuff, and Randy Brecker has been involved with some very good records over the years. This was a really fun conversation that went in some very interesting directions, so I hope you enjoy listening to it. and the theme for the year is fusion. And so I'm curious how you think about that term because the last guy that I spoke to right before you was I spoke to Lenny White. And he doesn't like that term. He prefers jazz rock. 
And I think given a lot of the music that you've played, you know, particularly in the late 60s and early 70s, you might feel the same way. Is that the case? What, do you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, maybe I'm not as uh, anti-fusion uh, as Lenny, although I think the reason that fusion uh, does have a, uh, 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 got disparaged, I guess is the word, once it developed into smooth jazz, and when a few bands got popular, everyone jumped on the bandwagon, so to speak, under the age of fusion. So maybe jazz rock is a more descriptive uh, way of, of putting it. Uh, but there was a certain element truth to that word where because electricity was involved and you were, we were fusing different elements together. So when, few, when, the ter- when the term first came to the fore, I think uh, it was a, a decent way to describe that style of music. Maybe now I, I tend to want to as rock more than uh, fusion because it's got such uh, so many kind of meteor mediocre records associated with it <laughs> media mediocre and below mediocre and i'll never forget when when uh th- that term came to the fore and then all the record producers i'd go to sessions and they were really poor poorly arranged kind of thrown together charts under the ages Fusion, and then the term solely developed into smooth jazz and Kenny G, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it probably is better to use the term jazz rock, which is more descriptive. <laughs> I think the, the thing is, when it, when it went from being a description to a genre, you know, because yeah. those are two different things. You know, like once once the rules are laid down, then then that's when the trouble starts, it seems like. Yeah, I think uh, that had a lot to do with it, but also just human uh, element took over greed and everybody wanting to get on that little bandwagon, like I said. Uh, happened more during the so-called fusion years than the jazz rock years, so it was hard, because uh, they were more band-oriented. Maybe that was it, you know, with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and uh, Chicago, and Dreams, and uh, Mahavishnu, and... and Miles's band. There was more emphasis on, on uh, bands rather than uh, artists. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I feel what, what's really interesting to me is the the blurriness of that of those years, in the sense of like you know, King Crimson and Mahavishnu are basically the same thing. It's the same five instruments, you know, the only difference is vocals in some senses. You yeah, know, yeah. That 72 to 74 lineup of King Crimson. And and then Mahavishnu, like, touring with Yes, you know, and Herbie Hancock touring with Santana, and, and you know, like all this kind of, these kind of blurring, you know, people doing things that didn't, see, that there weren't, as as many lanes you know yeah i agree i agree but they're at the same time exciting uh it was nice to hear all the cross influences and the cross currents so to speak of music all the lines were being blurred and there still was a period where there was still live music and bands like i said rather than machines so i i I'm all for those years. I wish we could bring some back in a way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I want to, there was uh, one in specific I, I'm very curious about from your point of view is because you were with Billy Cobham from about 73 to 76, I think. Yeah. And so you and your brother. So tell right. me about your experiences in that band. Like what, were you guys touring a lot? Like what opportunities were available for that band at that time? You know, what was it well, actually like? Well, Billy had become very popular, and we we had uh, gone back many years. Uh, Billy and I joined Horace Silver in 1967, maybe, and we were with him for a couple of years. So, and it, Billy was also in Dreams. Uh, and in short, I played with him for a period of maybe eight to ten years. If you part of the family, I just knew his style backwards and forwards and knew him backwards and forwards. And I was so happy when Maha hit Vishnu hit it big. And then Billy, who uh, was always a very hard worker and always at work composing and arranging his own music, which McLaughlin uh, didn't want to play. John wanted to play his own music and had his own vision. Uh, uh, Billy went in the studio put a band together, great band, recorded Spectrum, and that became a big hit. A couple of Billy's tunes uh, became standards. So got a, I never forgot, it got in the top 40 on the Billboard, top 200 albums. So the next thing he knew, he's a star. So he could tour all over the world, and that's what we did in a nutshell. Uh, and he could afford having a crew and and do things the right way, you know, uh, so uh, we were all very comfortable in that situation. He was writing like a man possessed. We did a, many records within that two or three year period, maybe sometimes three a year, uh, all of Billy's tunes. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was just, uh, you know, I always loved his playing to this day. I still love his playing. We, we toured uh, the end of 2019, like the old days, we got on a bus and did a cross-country tour with his uh, special guested with his regular band from the East Coast to the West Coast. And uh, we actually did some gigs uh, with uh, another uh, band called the Modern Standards, which was put together by Niels Landoki just uh, six or seven months ago in uh, Denmark. We did four or five gigs together. So we stay in touch, and he's playing as good as ever uh i think he doesn't get enough credit actually as uh being such an influence on 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 the uh jazz rock world so to speak yeah He's i just, think there's there's only four or five drummers that really were the paradigmatic guys from that era and it was billy and lenny and then Tony yeah. Williams, Jack DeJanette, and Lenny actually reminded me of Alphonse Mouzon, who I hadn't even thought of. But yeah. I feel like it was those guys, you know, who really changed the rhythm and were as important in their zone of jazz drumming as Sonny Murray and Rashid Ali and, you know, uh, Milford Graves and... Uh, and Andrew Surreal were in the free jazz world. Like those were the guys that kind of broke open timekeeping. And then these guys were the ones who really were as conversant in jazz and rock, you know, and, and created that new sound. 
Very true, and it was interesting because I was there the whole time with Billy, watching his, him bulk up his body, going from one bass drum to two bass drums, and from two tom-toms to maybe five tom-toms, and expanding <laughs> his drum set, and checking out Ginger Baker, and saying, I can do that, and then wanting to write his own material, and then just I saw the whole thing develop in his head, so it was fascinating. Uh, to me and he was a good band leader he knew what he wanted but he let us uh, stretch out as much as we wanted during the gig so it was a it was a very nice situation kind of what's interesting is to me is you know where because when somebody plays as forcefully as he does and with as much precision as he plays it's interesting to see how they incorporate freedom for improvisation you know within that incredibly tight and powerful context so I mean from your perspective as the horn player how did it you know, how did the arrangements work and how, what, what did you see as your position in that, you know, within that storm of sound? Well, I had to fit my stuff in. Sometimes he could be somewhat overpowering, but that's why we adapted uh, amps on the horns and, and uh, stomp boxes, uh, echo plexes. I had uh, uh, various... Uh, electronic devices that I could turn up and, and shred along with him, uh, which I didn't have with Horace. And he was a pretty strong drummer in that situation, too. Every once in a while, we'd have to say, Billy, uh, maybe play a little softer behind me, <laughs> taking up all the space. But with Nampson, with the effects, man, we could keep right up with him. But he was the arranger, man, you know, and he has his own harmonic concept that we followed to this day. He's the arranger, and he knows what he wants to hear, and uh, we try to uh, balance what we want to play with what he wants to hear, and luckily we were always on the same wavelength. You know, he enjoyed what we did, and we, of course, enjoyed uh, what he did, so it was uh, mutually acceptable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The uh, the album Shabazz, the last record that you guys did with him, is always interesting to me because it's a live album made up of new material. So was there a lot more that he was writing at that point that was not released? Oh, I'm sure there was. Uh, um, he's always writing. In fact, uh, on this tour that I told you about, which uh, happened in the end of 2019, the idea was to to redo Crosswinds. That was what he told me, uh, and he rewrote all the tunes. Any any old tune that we played, he wrote a bunch of new stuff, but 
the Crosswind tunes were barely recognizable. He added so many uh, different aspects to that record. The tunes were in there, but he had to listen closely. So he's always at the keyboard, writing and forging ahead with his music. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, you did. You and your brother both did a lot of session work, a tremendous amount of session work in the 1970s. And I have several questions about that because uh, the first of which is I know. Musicians always talk a lot about serving the music, you know, but when you're in the studio for a day and you're just laying down like a super simple horn part on an Aerosmith song, let's say, is there any real artistic satisfaction in that or is it the equivalent of a novelist who takes a job writing marketing copy, you know, or something like that? Like, how like how does it really feel from your perspective? Well, it's, it's somewhat in between, you know, uh, you're you know you're doing a job so your first responsibility is to keep the artist happy uh but i uh and i enjoyed that aspect of it and i enjoyed uh the fact that i could stay in new york and work and there was a lot of camaraderie uh among the musicians because we saw each other every day we never were never sure who else was going to be there it was always a pleasant surprise Usually there were five or six horns, and the strings went in. You see the singers, the background singers, uh, the rhythm section guys. So as a social thing, it was a lot of fun. And generally the music was very professional, arranged at a high level. Uh, and for me, as a trumpet player, it was fun for me to sit in a horn section and blend with the other players. Those were the pluses. Mm -hmm. But the minuses were that you weren't doing your own music, uh, which, uh, in fact, was why I started to write my own music. So at a certain period of time, I didn't want to just be known as somebody who played other someone else's music. I wanted to start creating a niche for myself with music I had written, and that became the impetus. So the studio work really became the impetus for me to write my own tunes and start figuring out my own concept as far as what I wanted and having a band, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But luckily, you know, it was New York, so the level, 95% of the time, was really high as far as the musicality and, the, and just the professionalism involved. Right, right. So there weren't there weren't sessions where they would bring you in and be like, we're not sure, figure something out, you know, or whatever. Yeah, there were some like that and some good ones, but uh, generally uh, they were pretty well arranged and, and put to, you know guys knew and the ones you mentioned, in fact, uh, the uh, Aerosmith were always very well done. But occasionally you'd show up and there'd be music on the bandstand and no notes on the music. Uh, and you had to write something quick. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was there a point at which you no longer needed to take session gigs like that to make rent? And was it like immediately noticeable when you began to make enough money on your own to focus on your own music? And how did that, if there was that transition point, how did it feel as a young, you know, performer? Well, truthfully, man, you know, I enjoyed doing studio work. I, I enjoyed that lifestyle. And uh, 
it was a it was a process really. So I started writing my own music. We started getting uh, uh, popularity as a band. We had had one hit that uh, we had gotten. It's kind of a long story. We had gotten signed to uh, Arista Records, uh, and I had written nine compositions featuring myself, my brother, and Dave Sanborn with the uh, thought of doing a Randy Brecker solo record. That was the whole idea to get my own music out there. But we got an offer from Arista Records by Clive Davis, who had uh, just started the record company and who had signed me and Mike to Columbia when we had the band Dreams. And he had heard about the music I had been writing as one of his uh, executive producers called me up named Steve Backer. And Clive offered to sign the band. I wouldn't have to go out to make demos and take it around and try to sell the music to someone. But he wanted to call it the Brecker Brothers. I've told this story several times. And at first I protested because I wanted it to be a solo record. And Sanborn was in the front line, so it would look funny. But it was such a nice opportunity, I relented and said, okay, call it the Brecker Brothers. We'll go in. We'll record my nine tunes. Clive loved everything we recorded. But uh, he said, son, you need a single. And I said, no, I don't want to do a single. It was supposed to be all music I've written. First of all, you're calling it the Brecker Brothers. It was supposed to be a Randy Brecker solo record. But in his own way, he diplomatically said that he wasn't going to put the thing out unless we did a single. <laughs> he was a genius. And I trudged back to the our rehearsal studio, and we actually jammed up a tune called Sneaking Up Behind You. Uh, and that became an R&B hit. It got up to number two. And that's what sold the record, got up to the top 40 and the billboard charts, too, on the strength of the single, not the stuff that I had written. Eventually, the stuff I had written kind of worked its way in the, as rites of passage, some skunk funk. There's thousands of bands that play that tune now, mm-hmm. or sponge a lot of the stuff off that record. But like I said, it was a process. And at the same time, quite honestly, studio work by the 80s, had slowed down quite a bit. I was happy to keep doing it because we were playing a lot at the same time. You know, at night we were playing with our own band occasionally. We were playing with Hal Galper. We eventually had a club where we could play wherever we wanted, any style of music. So it was an interesting time. But luckily, we had our feet in kind of both uh, uh, sides of the business. We enjoyed doing studio work for other people, but we started making our own records as the Brecker Brothers so we could also tour. Mm -hmm. And eventually the studio work, uh, you know, a a lot of my friends put it like, you know, I got tired of doing studio work. I wanted to play jazz. But what happened really was the studio work just stopped. It all became sampling and digital technology, somebody in their living room playing all the instruments machine-wise. So it just, it ground to a halt. And luckily we had careers as players. So we went out and did that and toured the world. Yeah, yeah. You you and your brother were part of uh, Frank Zappa's band for that concert in 76 at the Palladium, which was the album Zappa in New York. And right. I know in 2019 they put out an expanded box set of those of those concerts. 
talk to me about your impression of, of Zappa as a, as a composer and a band leader, because there are a lot of different perspectives from critics, from fans, and from people who worked with him over the years. So, I mean, talk to me about that music and what you brought to it. Was there like a lot of rehearsal or were you guys sort of thrown in the deep end, you know? Yeah, it was kind of both because they had been touring a lot, the core band, and I think they had their own horn section, but for some reason, uh, the horn players on Saturday Night Live when he hit New York got the gig, and I wasn't the and I was like the second trumpet in uh, the Saturday Night Live uh, band when they needed two trumpets. My good friend, the late great Alan, Mister Fabulous. Ruben was the regular guy on Saturday Night Live, but for some reason he didn't want to do the gig. Maybe the music was too... Uh, he never gave a reason, so I ended up on the gig with my brother. Everyone else was in the Saturday Night Live band. Tom Bones Malone, Blue Lou Marini, and uh, Ronnie Cuber. And there was a lot of rehearsals because the music was very, very difficult. And Frank was a stern taskmaster. He was really a uh, classical conductor in uh, hippie clothing, so to speak. So he wanted his music played exactly like he wrote it. Uh, and there wasn't much room for any other person's suggestion, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but he knew what he wanted, and he was a wonderful conductor. He could He could play everything he wrote and he could conduct exactly everything he wrote. So he wasn't fooling around when it came to that. And and the whole thing was, to me, pretty miraculous. You know, the comedy inherent in his show and the fact that he could think of this whole concept, uh, the hippie concept, to bring his music to a larger audience. Because mm-hmm. that, that wasn't the, the real Frank, was really just a classical... Uh, musician classic that's how he described himself earlier on i don't know if you ever saw the uh was a night tonight show one of the tonight shows uh i don't know if it was johnny carson or merv griffin where they brought him on and he played uh he introduced himself once again as a classical composer and uh uh played bicycles with a bow (laughs) squeaky noises uh, but he was very clean-cut young man dressed in a suit, and I think eventually he lacked, latched on to the hippie culture and figured uh, that there was a way to capitalize on the youth orchestra, which he did, and, and it fit naturally and was a, quite a creative process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, that that era of his music, not nece- not even necessarily that stuff, but the stuff just a few years earlier where he was doing sort of big band, you know, jazz rock stuff has always been really interesting to me because you could tell that he had, you know, pretty serious ideas about how to how to make all that stuff work, you know, and he wasn't just like fucking around. Oh, no, hardly, man. He had every little nuance the other interesting thing was his scores, uh, which I checked out, were immaculate. You know, they were all handwritten, uh, by pencil written, but fine point. Uh, and no no erasures. It was uh, uh, not, uh, computers weren't around yet. It was all handwritten and immaculately written. So he really knew what he wanted and what he was doing. 
Yeah. And he and it was his own style of music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So pretty impressive. Now some of it I like, some of it I don't know if I would listen to that much, but I certainly had a lot of respect for what he did. Yeah, yeah. And he seemed to be somebody, like you say, he wanted it played exactly the way he wrote it. So he seems like somebody who would have a respect for music, you know, for virtuoso musicianship and stuff like that, you know. Yeah, I I always tell this story. We played the Black Page every night, which, as you might know, is called the Black Page because there's so many notes on the thing. The page is, is halfway black, full of notes and odd rhythms. It was almost impossible to play. But Lou Marini probably was the foremost sight reader. He, out of the five of us, I think he did the best. But it was written for tenor saxophone. I might have this wrong, but it's the point of the story. And one night, instead of playing tenor on it, he played soprano sax, which is uh, the same key, but just a different sound. And halfway through the tune, Frank noticed that he was playing soprano rather than tenor. And he said, wait, stop, stop. And he made us start all over. And he made Lou switch back to tenor, which is what it was written for. And we had to start over and play the tune over again because it was the wrong instrument, even though it was this, didn't sound that different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Around that same time, you also found your way into the George Clinton universe. You were on That's true, two Parliament yeah. records, and then you were on a Bootsy album, and you were on a Fred Wesley album. How did you get that first call to play on, like, Mothership Connection or whichever one was the first? I think that was the, the one that came first. Yeah, well, there's one Fred Wesley record. It was more of a jazz record that came before all that when I first moved to New York. And I, I don't quite remember how I got the call. Just uh, It wasn't through Fred. I hadn't met him yet. And it was more of a jazz record. It was somebody in the band or maybe one of the contractors, Emil Charlap, who suggested me. But the the uh, the Parliament Funkadelic happened. We had a band called Dreams, and we were on a bill with, uh, with uh, you know, they had two bands. I think it was billed as Funkadelic. You know, Parliament was the more sophisticated version. Uh, and the, uh, the Funkadelics were less sophisticated, same guys in both bands, all led by George Clinton. And we opened the show, then they came on, and we were blown away just by the apparel, the way they presented themselves. It was so colorful. And on the way back to New York, Mike hap- happened to be sitting next to George Clinton on the plane. So they exchanged numbers, and George had liked what we had, what we had done uh, as horn players and as a band. So he started calling us for the uh, sessions. That's how it came about. Mm. And how were those sessions run? Because, I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of stories of, you know, Clinton's sessions being chaotic and, you know, ideas being thrown around and stuff like that. I mean, what was your experience of it? Was it... uh... Well, there was some of that. You know, they they would uh, come... He would ask for other people's opinions, but he also knew who to call. We were in the, we were there mostly for the horn, not for the tracks. That's the thing. I don't recall being at any sessions where they were banding around ideas on how to record 
the tracks. We were called to do the horn overdubs for okay. the most most part. Now that's what's and and that was kind of clearly delineated because he had all the best writers. You know, Bernie Worrell, Fred. Uh, they were the two main writers, so they came always really prepared. We just sat down. There were great charts, uh, and we play the charts, and they were really well written. Both Fred and 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 Bernie were just great at at that. They were a big influence on my own writing. Uh, uh, but the the sessions could, could get kind of wild. You know, there was a lot of stuff floating around to keep us awake. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and I was to tell the story uh, on, on that particular session, tear the roof off the uh, sucker. Uh, 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 it was just four guys in the horn section, me, Mike, Fred, and Maceo, I think. Uh, and Joe Shepley, maybe five, another trumpet player. And they were real late getting to the studio. So I went out in the street, on 46th Street, it was a little place called, I think, Sound Sound Ideas, maybe. Just kind of, because it was an hour going by just to get some air, and I stood in the street. The next thing I know was beat-up station wagon pulled up in front of the studio, brown station wagon, and out, like, six guys came, full regalia, uh, Bootsy, uh, uh, Clinton, and I didn't know him at the time, but their drummer, Dennis Chambers, who I played with uh, till this day, but we hadn't really met before. He recognized me, but I didn't know who he was yet. A couple other guys in the band, and they had the tapes under their arms. The tapes were not even in boxes. All the tape leader were dragging on the ground. <laughs> and they had driven, this is true, they, were, they had driven from Detroit to New York. That's why they were late. And we went upstairs and recorded all the songs on that record. But that, but the uh, Fred and uh, and uh, Bernie lived in New York, which is why I guess they had to come here. And we kind of rattled off all these great charts. And Handcuffs was one of my favorites. I think Bernie Worrell uh, wrote that one. It's a lot of contrapuntal writing, really intelligently written, and it was just a lot of fun us being there. Mm. Yeah, that's all I can say. And, and their company was Thang Inc. That's how they paid us. They got and it's a check, T-H-A-N-G, Incorporated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bernie had, had a lot of, uh, like, a deep classical background, I think. I mean, he was he yes, was a he serious did. keyboard guy, you know. Yeah, I think he had a really a lot to do with the rhythm. Like I said, I wasn't there for the rhythm section part of it, but I think he had a, a lot of input. And I think there's still to this day there's some feeling between the two that he didn't quite get what uh, his just deserves, so to speak, because George, I don't think, was really a trained musician like Bernie was. And those records kind of revolve around the keyboard work, which was all brilliant, too.
With the Brecker Brothers, I was looking at the album credits, and there really wasn't a steady lineup after that first record. I mean, you you guys changed musicians in and out a lot from album to, to yeah. album. So, I mean, was it sort of a Steely Dan kind of situation where it was you and your brother and then the best people around at the time for a given session? Well, kind of. I think the first, let me think, well, the first three records, at least, the core of the band was there. And in fact, me, Mike, Sanborn, Grolnick, and Will Lee. And we had different drummers, different percussionists, different uh, singers. Uh, for instance, uh, the first record was all, like I said, it's stuff that I had written. We had it to hit, and then we decided on the second record to call it the Brecker Brothers Band. So most of the same guys, and I wanted to spread around the arranging and writing chores for several reasons. The main reason was I had a bunch of tunes, written a bunch of new tunes, but half of them I didn't like, and half of them the band didn't like either. So we <laughs> used elements of those. But there were also great writers in the band, so we spent a lot of time, like we did in the band Dreams, jamming up a lot of stuff in the studio. And uh, Will wrote some lyrics, and we had also met the great Luther Vandross, I had, who was recommended by uh, my friend at the time, Bette Midler. Uh, uh, I ran into her somewhere at a club, and I, I said, you know, this next record, we want to bring vocals to the fore a little more. Would you know anybody? She said, oh, sure, man, call this guy Luther Vandross, and his, uh, he's got a, a singing group, and they worked on David uh, Bowie's uh, fame. He's great. So we got together, and sure enough, he was amazing. He had so many ideas to add lyrics to certain tunes or add his vocal group back to him. So that was the big difference on the second record. Of course, what happened to Luther eventually becoming one of the biggest stars of all time was so gratifying, but he was really a genius. The third record, we had a different producer, and he wanted to bring, this is a long story too, but that one, we had our core group, but he, the producer, his name was Jack Richardson, a good guy, but he wanted to bring some of his own people onto the date. And we were, we should have said no, but we didn't. So people were flying down from Canada. That record kind of got away from us a little. <laughs> and by the fourth record, some of the guys that started to leave formed their own band. So we started slowly but surely. George Duke, I think, uh, Oh, wait, the fourth record was Heavy Metal Bebop. The live one, yeah. Which was an outgrowth of uh, of the Zappa gig with uh, Terry Bozio on drums. And a new bass player I had met, Neil Jason. And a new keyboard player I had met, uh, Mark Gray, who appears a little on it. Uh, and Grolnick and uh, Will had just become too busy to do it. They were out with various people. Grolnick was out with uh, James Taylor, and Will was on a million different things, so they were kind of hard to get. Eventually formed a whole new band uh, with Richie uh, Morales and Neil Jason. Hiram Bullock was in that band, uh, Barry Finnerty, uh, and that became kind of our second great band. So basically, if you can narrow it down, although there was changing personnel, it was really two core bands, the first original band and then the, and the band with uh, with Finnerty and 
earlier hire up at uh, 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 Neil Jason on base, and we had one other hit with that one called East River that Neil wrote. Mm. But they were all we were all close friends, you know. A lot of guys were doing other things too. That was the nature of the thing. Uh, everyone was busy in the studio world doing other people's records too at the same time. But we had a lot of fun. We were uh, we would get out on the road more with that second band and tour Europe, uh, did a bunch of gigs in Montreal, and uh, uh, so it was a lot of fun. And then later, in the nineties. Uh, we got back together after a 10-year break with a whole different band, Dennis Chambers, and James Genius, George Witte, et cetera, et cetera, Mike Stern. So that was a whole different kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Your, your brother was three, three and a half years younger than you, and I'm curious, because I have a younger brother about the same age difference, and uh -huh. there's no way that he and I would have been able to collaborate on a creative project as kids and stick with it into adulthood. So I'm curious, as people, how you managed to work together as musicians for so long. Well, that's a good question. You know, uh, we just uh, got along really well. Not that we occasionally we'd have an argument, you know, as brothers do, but generally we just had a lot of fun together playing. And, and, and we, the interesting thing was that uh, there was like a sixth sense between us where we didn't have to talk about phrasing or nuances or how to play this phrase with this kind of vibrato. We just knew how to do it. We rarely ever had to talk specifics. And Sanborn, when we met him, he was in that same wavelength too. And Barry Rogers and Ronnie Cuber. Those were the guys we probably recorded with the most, not necessarily with Brecker Brothers, but we were able to jam up parts. We had just the same influences and feeling that we couldn't get with most other horn players. But particularly me and Mike work really, really great together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we enjoyed our, each other's uh, company, too, luckily. <laughs> so we weren't like the battling Dorseys or a lot of brother combinations that uh, didn't get along, luckily. Yeah, yeah. I recently, I recently read something about him which talked about a really rigorous practice regimen, and I'm wondering if that was the same was true of you, because the the trumpet is, I mean, it's a tougher instrument than the saxophone in that sense, you know. Well, so, so they say. <laughs> I would say that nobody practiced as long as Mike. We uh, trumpet practicing and saxophone practicing is different in the fact that on trumpet, you've got to take breaks. You know, you can practice the saxophone, and I know this to this day. I'm married to a saxophonist, Ada Rovati. She can go in a practice room and play continually for three hours, you know. But trumpets, it's just the nature of the instrument. You kind of do it in segments mm -hmm. where you play maybe more calisthenic exercises to soften up and, and warm up your chops earlier in the day, and then you do uh, uh, classical exercises. That really helps inform your jazz technique just to keep the, tr the trumpet aspect of the horn active uh, uh, in a technical sense, more calisthenically oriented. Uh, trumpet is divorced from jazz trumpet uh, because when you play jazz or improvised music, you need to have uh, trumpet abilities, which is separate in a way. 
saxophone, uh, you, you, you have the reed to vibrate, and you can just blow. You need a good armature, but the, the vibration is not uh, is the reed and not your lip. So it's a different way of practicing. I always tell this story when we'd warm up before the gig uh, at, 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 at festivals. Usually I warm up by doing long tones. That's a typical way trumpet players warm up to to loosen up the muscles and just get a little flexibility in your chops. Mike would warm up playing as fast as possible. He was just just because he didn't have to warm up his lips so much. He had to warm up his fingers. Mm-hmm. So always in front of his practice room, there were like 10 kids with tape recorders trying to tape Mike's warm up. And me, I'm just going, da, da, da. I had no kids. You know, they didn't need to record that. And I've actually taken the way Mike warmed up to heart a little. So sometimes I, I do that myself now. After I do long tones, I'll just practice playing as fast as possible to loosen up my fingers. I'm getting older, and it gets a little, it's a little more work to just to get loose on the horn. Yeah, but I you mean, do to have do to put those, time in. You know, those Woody Shaw type of runs is like it's got to be a giant. You know, like thing. yeah, you got to keep your chops up uh, as much as uh, sometimes we don't want to do it, we have to do it, and sometimes <laughs> it's actually fun. You just never know. For instance, last night was a tough night. I just really didn't feel like playing, and I forced. You know, you forced yourself. I. I did my exercises and I find play along things that I that feel good to play with and uh, uh, but it was a tough night. Other nights it's just fun. You just never know. This was interesting. It's kind of the magic of music. You, you can't predetermine uh, what your day is going to be like if it's uh, if the trumpet's going to be relenting or or not. <laughs> you know, yeah. one day it feels great, the next night you say, oh, well, it felt great yesterday, okay, and put it up to your lips and it's just turned into a beast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess my final question is where, because I have this idea that I've been looking at, you know, because mm-hmm. as a journalist and a critic, I think about these things in ways that players necessarily don't, you know, but there's... In the 70s, it feels like there was fusion records and jazz rock records that were marketed to white audiences like Mahavishnu and Return to Forever and to and Jean-Luc Ponty and stuff like that. And then there was yeah. stuff that was definitely just as artistically complex as that stuff, but it was marketed to black audiences like Freddie Hubbard and George Duke and Eddie Henderson and Stanley Clark's solo records. And I'm curious where you see the Brecker Brothers records fitting in because it's labeled fusion now, but you guys got a Grammy nomination for like best R and B instrumental. So, yeah, you know, where did, like, how did the marketing side work from your perspective? And was it an accurate reflection? Well, that's a, of a good the question. Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, I think, uh, because the hit, which was sneaking up behind you became an R and B hit, uh, got up to number two, and the fact that we were called the Brecker Brothers, and a lot of African American uh, men and women thought we were black. Uh, <laughs> so I think the the, uh, uh, the and was our our product manager, great guy. He was black, and our art director, 
Baron Booth, Don Davenport, and uh, Hank Madras, I think his name was. So they and, and co- were inclined to promote it more uh, for African uh, for the black market, African American market, R and B market, because uh, the music leaned towards that more than it did uh, the white market and rock and roll market. Mm-hmm. That's my own impression. And like I said, uh, when sneaking up behind you came out, we, we did a lot of shows in front of uh, all black audiences. People that were when we played Skunk Funk and the stuff I had written, they kind of looked at us with uh, suspicion. But as soon as we broke out, sneaking up behind you, everybody come up and dance. So we spent the last five records trying to recreate hit number two, and which we did kind of with East River, but that was more of a uh, heavy metal funk tune. Uh, we never had that second really big R and B hit. But we got our name out there, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because but, I was talking to somebody about, you know, you mentioned at the very beginning, you mentioned Kenny G, and I feel like he, whether you like his music or not, he gets a bad rap from critics because they try and compare him to jazz. Whereas if they would just say he was an, you know, he was an instrumental R&B act, everybody would be better off. You know, because I think yeah, of him in the a, same way that I think of like Anita Baker or somebody like that. You know, he's that kind of quiet storm R and B thing. He's not a jazz musician. You yeah, know? he's trying to be himself, so he deserves to be able to be himself. So I'm in total agreement with you there. <laughs> it's a very sweet cat, and he's done a lot for bringing people to the music. You know, you start there, and then people discover Miles Davis, Charlie Parker along the way. He's never represented himself as being a really jazz player, but he has his own. The main thing he does have is a unique style that people could relate to, and he had a lot of stage presence, and he's a good showman. And he does what he does, and he's helped a lot of other musicians along the way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I wanted to just go back really briefly to talking about running the horn through electronics because was that something that developed when you were working with Billy Billy Cobham and what does it give you in terms of an artistic toolbox well it just lets us shred with the guys who uh, have uh, amps and who have drumsticks and play loud that was the main thing and it started with Blood Sweat and Tears actually where we were just playing into a mic and boy, you could barely hear yourself above the den of the amplifiers, which were right behind us, so to speak. Uh, you know, they and, and we had nothing. We had a barely had a monitor in those days. So, uh, a, a Barkersbury pickup was the first thing to come out, which would allow you to plug into an amp and just play, uh, get the, and amplify the sound of the uh, trumpet or whatever instrument was from behind you instead of uh, in front of you where you couldn't hear it. And then I discovered purely by accident that if you, uh, in the chain, if you put guitar effects like a wah-wah pedal, uh, it worked well uh, with the Barkinsbury pickup to change the sound of the trumpet, make it sound more like a guitar so you c- could compete with the electric instruments. It was as simple as that. There was a thing called an echoplex that you could kind of get kind of 
bendy notes and uh, and just play stuff that musically fit more in that context. And also, you could that was the main reason to be able to hear yourself when you play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the way you, that you used the effects was very different than, let's say, what Miles was doing with his wah-wah pedal. So, I mean... Yeah, well, that's why, you know, we each had our own style of using it. Uh, he sounded like he did, I sounded like me, and everyone had a style. It didn't necessarily uh, change your basic style of playing. Did it change the way you wrote? Like, did you write a tune and say, okay, I'm going to run this, th- you know, I'm going to run this through a pedal, so it's going to do this to the melody? You know? Yeah, I, I mean, you kind of knew what, what, what the stuff would sound like, and I also wrote not only through the, uh, the, the effects I had, the sound of the effects in my head, but these were solos. To this day, you know, I, I do a lot of home recordings, certain recordings, uh, maybe they'll suggest have some effects, other ones it's not called for. So, uh, but the sound, yeah, entered into our bloodstream, so to speak. And Mike started using them and did a lot of horn players. He had a great funk machine. It was envelope follower that he used on a lot of his early Brecker Brothers records. And it just added to the thing. It didn't detract from it. It just made us blend better with the band. And we were able to do things not having to overblow like maniacs just to hear ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember interviewing uh, a guitarist, Joe Morris, one time, and he said, you know, that's the thing. is like, to him, it inspired him to be a more subtle player because he said, you know, I can turn up my amp and blow any saxophonist off the stage. But it inspired yeah. him to go in the opposite direction and be a more subtle player and not rely on pedals, you know, in order to yeah. to kind of leave leave room for the other, you know, the other people. Yeah, well, you wanted to play, uh, you know, and of course, listening, uh, it, that was what was fun with with a lot of these bands because they were really jazz musicians at heart. So if you want a certain place, people could follow you, which was different than a lot of the strict rock bands, which were, uh, you know, people only knew a certain amount of chords. Uh, and Larry Coriel's band, for instance, I was the only horn. And I played with Larry for years, so and we kind of took it out, so to speak. Guys could uh, uh, could, could come with me, or vice versa. So there was a lot of open space for creativity. 